Ryan Walters is an independent historian. He's a history professor at Collin College and the author of the brand new book, The Jazz Age President Defending Warren G. Harding. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I know it's late, especially on a President's Day. I appreciate it so much, Frank. I'm I'm happy to be here. I'll I'll talk to anybody at any time, day or night. Well, I'm flattered to be in the anybody anytime category. <laughs> uh, all right, so of all 45 presidents, you know, there's some interesting characters that have been in the office of the presidency, and I know you've written about uh, a couple of them. Why pick Warren G. Harding? Uh, why would you choose to focus? And I, I've been reading through the book uh, now with a three month old. I haven't read it as closely as and as thoroughly as I would have liked, but I did spend a good portion of the weekend reading through it, and it's really well done. I could tell the amount of work that you put in this. Why put in this amount of work? Work and this amount of time uh, on a president like Warren G. Harding? Well, I think he's unfairly maligned. He's, he's, I consider him the most maligned president for this reason. If you look at all of the presidential rankings, going back to the very first one that was ever done, Arthur Schlesinger's poll in 1948, all the way to the latest one on C-SPAN last year, Harding has finished last in more of those polls and rankings than any other president, including Buchanan. Now, he's come up a few notches in recent years. In the the latest C-SPAN poll, he was 37th, but he's still in the bottom 10, which is considered a failed category. And I don't think that that's justified when you look at his record. Again, he's got scandals and other things, but when you look at what he accomplished as president, I don't think he deserves to be down there. So if you you look at his reputation, one of the – Things when we talk about Harding is uh, people always tend to bring up the same thing, that he's uh, he was a nice guy, that he really looked like a president. He looked like a part. But um, the guy was as corrupt as the day is long. He brought in a bunch of his buddies from Ohio, the Ohio gang. They they stole whatever wasn't nailed down. He cheated on his wife like crazy. Uh, The guy was drunk most of the time. In your view, what is inaccurate about this uh, this historical uh, legacy of Warren G. Harding? Um, all of what you just said is historically inaccurate, in my opinion, because what I did was look at the real record. I looked at the primary sources. I looked at his letters. I looked at memoirs of people that served with him and around him and knew him, even reporters, even some people that were hostile to him. And I didn't find that at all. Uh, they say he was dumb and wasn't intellectual or drunk most of the time. That wasn't the case either. When you read his letters, um, you see somebody that had a grasp of the issues, that knew what he was talking about, that understood politics. He had a few scandals. He didn't benefit by any of them. Um, there was no such thing as an Ohio gang. Uh, there were a couple of individuals that were corrupt, but he didn't bring a bunch of people from Ohio to Washington to loot the Treasury. I mean, there were people that did, but most of the people that he appointed from, from Ohio um, were honest people. And the fact is, Harding did something about the scandals, as, as he found out about them. There were three in his administration. The most famous was Teapot Dome. He had found out about that just before he passed away in August of 1923. He died in office after 881 days. So there were people that were fired. There were people that he confronted. There were people that were arrested and went to prison for that. Look at Grant. Grant had a bunch of scandals in his administration and didn't do anything about any of them. Um, A lot of people resigned their positions in Grant's administration, and he was very reluctant to accept their resignation. So 
Uh, it's how they responded to them. It's a lot different between Harding and Grant. You you spend a, a bit of time looking at Harding's record on foreign policy, and you describe how he sort of reversed America's interventionist foreign policy, which in, in the aftermath of World War One and the League of Nations, folks thought that that was going to be the new norm uh, for the United States. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Why was that a significant accomplishment in your view, is uh, going away from that Wilson Wilsonian level of interventionist foreign policy? Exactly. That's one big area where he gets almost no credit at all. Nobody really looks at it. They don't look much at his economic accomplishments, although I think people are doing that now. But foreign policy, uh, they ignore it altogether. But if you look at his foreign policy, it was very good. You're right. We had been on really a 20-year progressive kick. It really started with the Spanish-American War, but then by the time we get to Wilson, now we're sending troops overseas to Europe for the first time to intervene in this war. Uh, in Europe, and of course, it was over quickly in November 1918, and people were really happy that it was over. But but Americans, by and large, didn't have the stomach for any more. And I think that's why you see public opinion polls that stayed high all, uh, around 80 to 90 percent until Pearl Harbor. People didn't want to get involved in any of that anymore. I think that's a big reason why Harding won over 60 percent of the vote in 1920. He was calling for a turn to normalcy. And he said, Wh- in his which I've heard was not even a word at the time, uh, normalcy. Well, well, that's 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 the that's a myth too. That actually was a word. It's actually in older dictionaries. That's been that's a myth that's been disproven as well. A lot of people say he made it up or he misspoke. It was in dictionaries at the time. Um, he even admitted that's where he had found it in a dictionary. I mean, he was he had some quirky language sometimes, and some of his speeches didn't make a whole lot of. You know, they weren't written way speeches are today, but. Um, he was pretty much a worse Remember, he owned a newspaper for a sure. long time, and he wrote a lot of editorial. So the man was – and the newspaper was very successful. Um, so he wasn't dumb at all. In terms of his economic record, one of the things that we have been led to believe about the stock market crash of 1929 was that the Roaring Twenties, the Jazz Age, and the opulence of that decade – helped pave the way for the stock market crash and the Great Depression. In your view, um, what was Harding's record on the economy? Well, most people don't realize the economy was in bad shape when he ran for president and when he entered office in in March of 1921. The the economy fell into a depression in January of 1920. It's often been referred to as the forgotten depression in American history. Most people don't even know we had one. In 1920? Right. Yeah. It it fell considerably. The the unemployment rate went from uh, almost nothing because of World War One up to twelve percent. You had inflation, all of the things that you see with a depression. And Harding came in with a laissez-faire conservative uh, approach. We're not going to stimulate the economy. We're not going to spend and tax and do all these kind of things. We're going to cons- cut taxes massively. The top rate on the taxes under Wilson had gone up over seventy percent. Uh, spending was through the roof, but he cut spending and cut taxes and cut regulations and things like that, and the economy boomed throughout the 1920s. We've never had uh, a decade of that type of prosperity, averaging 7% of growth a year. Surplus has paid off a third of the national debt, cut income taxes four times. I mean, it's a phenomenal record that he doesn't get credit for. But then they, but then liberal progressive historians are going to say, well, if you're going to give him credit for it, you've got to give him credit for the bust of 1929. 
No, I don't. Most of that's been blamed on the Federal Reserve, and rightfully so. The Federal Reserve did a lot of damage in 1929 to bring on the Depression. In terms of uh, his, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Ryan Walters. He's the author on this President's Day of The Jazz Age President Defending Warren G. Harding. He makes a uh, very compelling case uh, that Warren G. Harding is not to be one of the worst presidents we've ever had, and uh, his reputation deserves a bit of a rehabilitation. Now, uh, a lot of people who defend certain presidents, whether it's Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, or others, uh, John F. Kennedy, they always make the distinction between the president's policies and the president's personal character. Uh, Harding's personal character have has been attacked just as much of his, as his policies have. What about this reputation that Harding enjoys as a philandering drunk? How true is that? Um, it's been blown out of proportion. Now he'd like to have a good time. Let's not let's not gloss over this. I mean, he uh, he did enjoy a drink, and he did have at least two extramarital affairs earlier in his in his life, even when he was in the U.S. Senate, but not while he was president. That's where I draw the line. Um, the 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 story is, well, he had all these wild parties in the White House and you know, drinking and women, and you see all this kind of stuff portrayed in, in movies and different things. That's not true. I mean, I found sources inside the White House that said no women came into the White House to see uh, Harding at any time. He wasn't messing around in the White House. He, even the Secret Service agent uh, wrote memoirs and said no women came to see Harding at any time. And and none of the none of that kind of stuff is true. So when you look at the primary sources, people that were actually there, uh, you get a much different story than these political attacks that historians have taken and run with for over a hundred years to really just destroy his reputation. But again, he did have some affairs. He had at least one illegitimate child. We know now is he is through DNA. Um, so yeah, he's got some you know he's got some black marks in his private life, but he didn't he didn't have wild parties in the White House. In, in in your view, what were Harding's biggest successes? Turning the economy around. Um, that had to be the first thing that happened. Uh, you had to do that before you could do anything else. But, I mean, look at everything. I mean, reversed our interventionist foreign policy. Um, I have a chapter called Harding the Healer. He, he pardoned political prisoners that Woodrow Wilson um, – People were thrown in jail for opposing World War One. Um, he pardoned and let him out of office. He called for equality for Black Americans, a civil rights bill, an anti-lynching uh, uh, bill. Uh, went to Birmingham, Alabama, and spoke to a segregated audience there and said, uh, "Blacks deserve equal treatment." That's very, very courageous mm-hmm. at the time. He does not get credit for that. I mean, look at Wilson and FDR's record on race; they're deplorable. Yet we put them in the top ten, and Harding's down at the bottom. So he did a lot to heal the country from the divisions of World War One, the violence that broke out in 1919, um, turned the economy around, uh, repaired our relations with Latin America and other nations. So he's got a, a good record when you look at all of it together. Now, Harding was a conservative, and I know your publisher, Regnery, and I used to work for Salem, which was uh, the uh, the parent company or the mm-hmm. sister company of, uh, of Regnery, Regnery usually has an interest in promoting conservative authors on a wide variety of subjects. Is there an ideological component uh, to what you're doing here? Are you, in part by defending Harding, also defending conservatism? No doubt. No doubt about it. And a lot of these things come down to one's ideology. 
a lot of a lot of these historians, particularly in, you know in history departments at universities across the country, I mean they're notoriously liberal, top heavy. I mean you got some departments that have no Republicans or no conservatives, and we know that, and that's okay. But and that's why they like Wilson and FDR. I mean I'm a conservative. I don't hide it. I don't try to I don't try to say I'm unbiased. I'll, I'll tell you straight up I am. So yeah, I am defending conservatism, particularly in terms of the economy. Um, and the way that these things were handled in those days. So, yes, a big part of it. It was over 100 years ago when Harding was elected. He did not even serve a full term because, as you point out, he died in office. Why does Harding matter today? 100 years after he was elected, why should we even still be talking about this fella? Well, I think there's a lot of lessons we can learn, particularly in terms of the economy. I mean, our economy is not in good shape today. And for some reason, since 1929, and when Herbert Hoover was in office and an FDR, we seem to want to stimulate the economy every time it gets in trouble instead of instituting conservatism. But look, Harding was a, just a regular guy. He was not an academic. He, was, he didn't come from a prominent family. He was just a small-town guy, small-town business owner, got into politics, became president because he wanted to help the American people. He was one of the nicest guys that we've ever had in office. Even his enemies say that say that he was one of the nicest people they ever met. Um, he just wanted to do the right thing for the American people and just serve and do the best he could do. And I just don't think, you know, smearing him the way he's been smeared um, is fair to him. How did he come to be on the receiving end of 100 years of historical criticism? I think if you look at the historians, um, and a lot of scholars have pointed this out, and it, and, it, and it started almost 100 years ago when he because when he died and then all these scandals started keep coming out and a lot of people backed off when he died and his wife died the next year 1924 uh, they built a memorial in Marion Ohio for him and Calvin Coolidge was his successor and Coolidge wouldn't even go up there and dedicate it because the news stories about Harding were so bad he thought it would hurt him politically wow. it was not until Herbert Hoover in 1931, went and dedicated the memorial, and he gave a real good speech defending Harding. So Hoover's one of the first ones that really stepped out in defending because uh, people said, well, he was just a terrible president, and, and, and they just left it at that. And then that's all anybody ever learned in school or anywhere else. And, of course, it's the left um, leftists that are right, the, the, the textbooks and other books. Most people don't know anything about him. They've never really looked. All they knew is what somebody told them in school. They don't know anything about their policies. They never looked at it. And when you point it out, a lot of people, they'll tell you, well, I didn't know that or I didn't know this. Mm. So that's all I'm trying to do is to point people to his record and say, look, there's another side to this. Don't just look at it from what the progressives are saying. Look, there, there, is, there is more here than meets the eye. Are you hoping to do with this book what other historians have done for people like Dwight Eisenhower and Ulysses Grant and improve his historical reputation? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what I'd like to be able to do. Now, are we going to get him um, on Mount Rushmore? No. (laughs) Or in the top 10? Um, No. Uh, But I'm trying to get him at least off the bottom. And there's been other scholars, other historians that have. Uh, John Dean wrote one in 2004. Um, I'm tr- I just tried to dig deeper and pull out more of his policies. And so people can take a second look at it. And people are going to say, well, are you afraid of being a historical revisionist? Now, I don't care what name these people throw at you. I don't believe in – I'm not a revi- – the revisionist are the one that wrecked his reputation, in my opinion. I'm just trying to restore it to what it was. 
a man who got over 60% of the vote in 1920. When he died in 1923, had a funeral procession that people said was as big as, uh, as, as big as the country we've seen since Lincoln was assassinated in 1865. So he was very much beloved by just the regular common people in the country. It's the academics and the establishment that hate him, and that's, of course that's what prevails. It's interesting that you mentioned that, uh, that John Dean book. Dean, of course, served in the Nixon administration, was at the heart of the Watergate controversy. He's no stranger to controversy himself. Uh, he's endured a lot of criticism on both the left and the right. What was your impression of that John Dean book on uh, on Harding? Did you find that it was pretty accurate? Yeah, I actually enjoyed it. And that's and of course, Dean Dean grew up in Marion, Ohio. Um, that's he, so he was a really a good guy to write the book. It was it's part of the Schlesinger American President series. They're not mm-hmm. very thick books. Right, they're they're kind of small. Yeah. And a lot of people had a lot of criticism. Well, I would like to have seen more. And I, that's one of the things that kind of whet my appetite to do it, to do something bigger. I didn't want to do some five hundred page uh, huge thing, but I wanted to do more and look deeper into his policies, deeper into the man. And what he was trying to do, and that's that's what I did. You've also written about. Uh, but by the way, what's the best way for people to get this book if they're interested in this book, The Jazz Age President? It's on Amazon and and um, Barnes and Noble, and I think it's in, in in some Barnes and Noble stores. All right, so wherever books are sold online yeah. and many bookstores in person, the book's called right. The Jazz Age President. Right. That's it. Okay, yeah, now it is, it, it is President's Day, so people the whole day are going to be trading presidential trivia questions with one another. And one of the, the frequent questions that any uh, beginner in tri- in presidential trivia is used to getting is, "Who's the only president for now to serve two non consecutive terms?" And the answer, of course, is New York's own. Grover Cleveland. Uh, New Jersey claims him as well. You've written uh, about Grover Cleveland as well. Uh, Tell me where you think his reputation lies among previous presidents. Cleveland was was an extraordinary president. He's he's in he's in my top five best presidents. No question about it. I mean, I'm a southerner. I'm originally from Mississippi, but I love Grover Cleveland and Hardy. So I like northern presidents. But Cleveland, he's usually about about the middle but I think again, if you look at his record, his is a lot better. But again, he's a he's a Jeffersonian conservative. I call him the last Jeffersonian president because he was, um, and he's been kind of slandered. Um, he took on the worst depression in the 19th century, which rivaled the Great Depression in its severity, and did a lot to straighten that depression out. By the time he left office in 1897, um, the economy was growing again at a pretty rapid rate. He didn't get credit for that. So um, in your in your judgment, the Cleveland uh, success is similar to Harding in that it's their stewardship of the economy and economic recovery that that gives them a better reputation than the one that they've enjoyed historically. Yeah. And they both came in following more progressive, more liberal uh, presidents that were doing more and spending more and trying to get an activist government and an activist presidency. Cleveland was like Harding. They were a lot alike, even though they were in different parties, but they believed a lot of the same things, that the president was not a king. The president was not a dictator. He was never meant to be that way, signing executive orders and doing all these kind of things. Now, that's not what the president was designed to do at all. 
But this is what they've tried to make him today. He's like he's almost like a king today. Right. That's not the way he would. A monarch without a crown. It is interesting that whatever party's not in power, they always point at the president that's in power and uh, the executive orders and the executive Mm -hmm. overreach and ignoring Congress. And they always say, oh, look, the president's becoming a king. The irony is that, of course, usually whatever the opposition party is, they're both probably right because we've seen the power of the presidency mm-hmm. grow irrespective of uh, which party is in power. Ryan, I spoke. I'm looking forward to giving it a more careful reading as soon as my son start, uh, starts sleeping more than four and a half hours in a row. <laughs> well, 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 God bless you, sir. I hope you, I hope you can. Hope Thank you. Get you. Sleep soon. Best of luck with the book. Uh, I appreciate your scholarship and all the work you put into this. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. All right. The book is The Jazz Age President Defending Warren G. Harding. We've been talking with its author, Ryan S. Walters. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.